business success usually comes to those who are too busy to be looking for it. Join RVK for the award-winning RV on Business Show every Tuesday at 12 midday. It's not about thinking out of the box. There is no box. Only on 101.9 High FM. Welcome to 101.9 High FM. It's five minutes past 12. Thank you so much for joining us once again. We are coming towards the end of the year, that time where everybody is writing exams. Some of us have, uh, not some of us, some of those who are writing already finished and are already on holiday. But everybody, no matter whether you're going away or you're staying at home, is just looking towards the end of the year. And as usually happens at this time of the year, there's quite a bit of volatility in the market. Um, I'm not quite sure why it happens overseas in South Africa. A lot of it has to do with coming towards the end of the year. Everybody wanting to just, you know, hang their, their coats up, go away and worry about everything in January. And this is the time that investors often have a time to really sit down, open up those emails that have been in the inbox for months, download the app that you've been told to download for years and actually have a look at the investments. And all of a sudden, you start going through things and you start seeing your investment as being quite volatile, which means that it goes up and down, is that it moves from being in a positive space, maybe going into a negative space. All of a sudden, you start double guessing, why did I go into this fund? Why haven't I been moved out of the fund? And all these questions start coming to the fore. And today, we're really, really blessed because we have... Scott Cooper, who's an investment professional at Marriott, simply to guide us through the idea of volatility and the idea of choosing a fund that has really got good funds within it and not having to panic about every time there's a market movement or correction. Scott, welcome to High FM. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Hope you're having a good Pleasure. day. Great. Scott, let's really get into the, the, the meat of it right from the very beginning. As you started your article, which I must say is really written very succinctly and to the point and is so easy to read, is that you've just got a whole lot of different factors all coming to the fore. You've got monetary and fiscal stimulus in the wake of the pandemic, which is now sort of hopefully passed, even though I do see the numbers are really starting to become a bit concerning. Russia's invasion of Ukraine and how that affects different things central banks, global economy. Talk us through a global outlook as to where we stand right now and why things are a little bit volatile or iffy, if we can use that term. Sure, no problem. I think it's really been it's really been an interesting kind of two and a half years. If you think back, and I know it seems like a long time ago, um, but if you think back to February 2020, when really COVID and the pandemic um, started to become a, a global reality, we saw a huge market sell-off. Um, and corresponding interest rate cuts from, from global central banks. Um, but then if you step forward kind of towards 2021, there was huge economic stimulus that was pushed through by, by central banks globally, you know, to the, to the extent of approaching $10 trillion. Wow. Um, and we obviously saw a little bit of the inflationary pressures coming from that, but also the inflationary pressures coming through in 2021 from a lot of the supply chain disruption um, on the back of the pandemic. And really this has pushed inflation to 
to its highest level it's been around the globe in, in 20 years or more. Um, and we're starting to see now the central banks having to, to react to this over the past six months and having to react quite strongly. And so we've seen rising interest rate cycles. So we've seen it in South Africa, but, but certainly in some of the first world markets as well. I mean, the US federal fund rate is now at 4% and they're projecting it to go towards five, five and a quarter percent. Um, and you've got the same happening in, in the Eurozone. You've got the same happening in the UK. And really it creates quite a lot of uncertainty for investors and within the market as to, as to how inflation, high interest rate rises are really going to play out over the next 6, 12, 18 months time. Scott, um, we need to take a quick break, but I want to drill down a little bit further into this idea of rising interest rates and the highest rates we've had for so many years, because I'm sure a lot of people have these visions of pre-World War Germany, Zimbabwe, and that's really not the case. So maybe just to try to put the co- into context what rising inflation rates really mean globally. Scott, we need to take a quick break. We'll be back with you in a moment. This is RV on Business. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. And just before we go back to Scott Scoop, sorry, Scott Cooper. Scott, coming back to you, just let everyone know Scott is an investment specialist at Marriott. And we're talking about the uncertainty about the investment market at the, at the moment. And Scott, we're talking about high interest rates. Um, and as I said to you that, you know, we're not talking about pre-war Germany. It almost hit me like a sledgehammer on the side of the head that I've sort of given my age away because anybody at my age would know that I was talking about pre-Second World War. But I suppose we can't take it for granted with the world being unfortunately such a volatile place when it comes to war. And uh, especially with Germany now being the responsible one in Europe when it comes to Russia's um, invasion of Ukraine. So, uh, yeah, just talk us through the reality of high interest rates as opposed to runaway inflation rates. Sure. Um, Yeah, I I think you're right. I think there's a big difference between the inflation and interest rates that we're looking at now and compared to, say, the 1930s or even the end of the 1970s. So when we talk about high rates and rising interest rates, I mean, from a longer term perspective, they're still very much within reasonable parameters. It's just that since the end of the global financial crisis in 2009-2010, we've really, both individuals and companies have seen the rock bottom interest rates and very little inflation for a decade or more. And really what's happened over that time is people get used to having this very cheap money um, and we became a very indebted society. I mean, if we look at it now, at the end of 2021, the global debt to GDP was was in excess of 350%. And really now, what we're seeing is as interest rates are beginning to go up, those companies that have less robust balance sheets, that are less profitable, are less able to maintain margins, will start to struggle over the next 12, 18, 24 months. Um, so I think interest rates really what they're going to end up doing is is very much squeezing the consumer um, and starting to drag down global growth. But I think it's you're as you say, it's incredibly important to bear in mind that while that is squeeze growth and harder times for the consumer, I think compared to some of the worst um, economic times over the past fifty to hundred years, it it pales in comparison. You know, Scott, just my own thoughts on this. You know, if you look back at the pandemic, 
it's almost like a black mark in so many people's minds. They, you know, we don't even talk about it. It was a an era that we lived through. We, um, you know, we involved everybody did their bit to make sure that the pandemic was under control. But the world basically came to a standstill. There wasn't a single airplane in the air. There wasn't a truck on the highway. It, it was just the craziest, craziest time. The fact that things have sort of got back to normal and everything's sort of getting back to the way it was prior to the pandemic, is that alone not enough to push demand up that to create like a short-term inflation shock? I think it depends. It's very, very country dependent. Um, so if you have a look now, for example, so the US inflation number came out um, a couple of weeks ago and it was slightly lower than than they expected, but the US really is the only major economy around the world at the moment that has a high demand side pressure on the inflation. Um, if you can contrast that to South Africa, for example, I mean, we've been our central bank has been raising interest rates. Um, we've seen a little bit of the food inflation. We've see, obviously seen the energy inflation, especially in terms of the petrol price, and that's been squeezing the consumer. But it's, it's very much uh, supply side inflationary pressures. So it's your input costs, your food, it's your input costs on the energy side, as opposed to that underlying demand inflation that really the US are the only country in the, in the world at the moment, or the only major country that's seeing a material amount of the demand side inflationary pressures coming through. Now, Scott, let's put aside all those monetary economist, um, um, you know, skeptics who say that raising interest rates are not really going to do anything in the long term because it has proven that it is most probably the only major tool in the in the in the shed that has a way of controlling inflation that we can monitor and we can control going forward. You know this increased cycle. How long do you think we're going to be here for? No, that's the that's the million dollar question. Um, I think I think we're going to see kind of going through towards the end of Q1 next year that really rates will be we believe tapering out at the highest point that they will get to. So you think in the US, for example, they might get to five, five and a quarter, maybe even five and a half percent by kind of March, April next year. But I think at that point, and the difficulty in asking this question is that there's a lag between when interest rates go up and when we see the inflationary numbers come down. Because obviously interest rates are, they affect things going forward, whereas the inflationary numbers, it's kind of backward looking. So I think. I would expect um, kind of over the course of March, April next year for, for interest rates to really have peaked. Um, and then depending on how the inflation goes and depending on demand side of things, um, potentially even start to reduce as we near the end of 2023 or the start of 2024. You know, obviously the, the, the title of your article was High Quality Investments in Volatile Times. We haven't really even got to the investment side. I just sort of wanted to help the listeners with painting the picture as to what's going on globally and, and why there is some volatility and what volatility and maybe uncertainty actually mean. But maybe let's get into the meat of it in the next minute before we, we need to take a, a, a quick break. Um, ultimately, no one is um, you know able to escape market volatility. Some companies weather the storm better than others. But when you guys are sitting down and you're saying, right, we've got a mandate from our clients to take their money and invest it in certain funds, what 
what's the main um, objective going through your mind when you're looking at to which investments to put in, in those funds? So from a married perspective, we really employ an income-focused investment style. And at, at the high end, that's effectively with the objective of providing investors with reliable and ideally growing income over time. Um, and we look to do that through a range of local and international product offerings. Um, but my focus is really on the on our offshore equity portfolios. And in that regard, we, we look to invest in companies that we believe will be able to pay reliable and growing dividends to investors over time and really look to buy and hold those, those investments in those companies for five years, 10 years or longer if possible. So really what it's about is buying those companies with proven track records where they, you know they're not going to be hemorrhaging money in order to keep their company going. They're not going to have big debt on their balance sheet that will affect the cash flow so that they are able to pay dividends. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we think of the core qualities that all of these companies have, you know, they're market leadership. So they're number one in their markets generally, um, which gives them great pricing power and great brand loyalty. Um, they've got great track records of growing their dividends um, through the cycle, regardless of where interest rates are, regardless of where inflation is. Strong balance sheets that are well managed, um, the ability to, to maintain profit margins through the cycle. And I think finally also you know, the diversification innovation. And we really saw this with a lot of our companies as well in when we had all of the COVID lockdowns, that their ability to, to continue to, to grow revenue, to continue to produce earnings um, and subsequently pay dividends for investors. Scott, I want to you know, discuss a little bit further. Let's just take a quick break. Let's run to the shops. I'll be back with you in a moment. This is RV on Business. Welcome back to 101.9 High FM. On the line with me is Scott Scooper from Marriott. Scott, we were talking just before we um, we went to the break just about the inflation and, and interest rates and the, the the logic of really founding sound companies that are established so that we're not running around with companies that have you know tremendous results one year but in the moment they want to grow or develop they need to really um, you know go under a tremendous amount of pressure in order to do that and therefore aren't able to pay dividends going forward. If it did happen that, you know, one of your companies, for example, had to innovate tremendously or was going on a, a, a new venture where they were going to burn a lot of capital in order to do that and therefore held back on a dividend for a year or two, would that be a worrying sign to you? That's a good question. Um, I think ultimately it depends on the reasons for it. If you've got a... so. Life insurers or insurers are a great example of this. So, for example, sometimes in order to, to shore up capital positions, um, they may pause a dividend um, or at least not grow it over time. But I think in terms of the companies that we're invested in, we our companies are large, robust, blue cap companies that have you know 10, 20, 50 year track records of growing dividends. And it would be a incredibly large shift in in where they're going if they needed to actually cut or cut the dividend or even not pay a dividend in order to get there. I think it's, it wouldn't, so to go back to, I think if a company was to, to cut a dividend, I think it would be incredibly important for us to understand the reasons for it. 
if there was a strong business case for it and we felt that the underlying company, their metrics, their ability to grow revenue over time, the ability to maintain profit margins um, was there for the longer term, I think we could kind of see past that and, and be supportive of that. Um, but at the same time, a lot of the work that we do is, is around mitigating the risks of the company um, and dividends are almost a, a side component of that. So um, it's a great indicator if you are starting to cut dividends that actually something is, is not right um, within the company. And it may not be that year, but in two or three, two or three years later, if a company is having to materially switch their um, modus operandi and to switch their, their philosophy, then I think that's really a red flag as to a company with potentially um, underlying issues as well. Scott, talking about red flags, um, I don't know. I personally was very excited when uh, when the uh, new government came into England, not this one, but the previous one that lasted long enough for us to sort of turn the page and then it disappeared. <laughs> it also uh, started, also lasted long enough for a certain gentleman who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, Mr. Kwasi Kwarteng, to stand up and I was surprised he wasn't lynched right there as he was he's giving his speech. I'm, I've never seen people. I mean, that's usually a bit of a zoo what goes on in that parliament. But they were seething and people were looking at each other like, what is this person on about? Maybe just, and also the reason I brought that up, because it really led to a dampening of the sterling, which is the besides the dollar, it's one of those underpaid currencies that you know, once that starts to dip, people get really, really nervous. What happened in that meeting and what happened in that government that sent so many shockwaves through the world that it was so material? Yeah, I think there were, I think some of the underlying principles um, and a focus on growth weren't necessarily the worst idea in the world, but I do think they made two quite large mistakes um, in their implementation. I think the first off is, is really when you're trying to push through a lot of tax cuts and a lot of growth initiatives, it's very difficult to do when you've got inflationary problems at the same time. Um, because those are obviously inflationary um, actions that you're taking. And I think, secondly, the, the real crux of the issue came down to the fact that they, that they believed or the market believed that the tax cuts were effectively unfunded and that the government didn't really have the money for it. And we saw them effectively skipping the Office of Budgetary Responsibility, um, which normally effectively audits or pre-vets the budget um, to make sure that it makes sense before it gets taken public. Um, and they effectively skipped that stage. So I think the market became very concerned um, about the future of the UK government debt and, and reacted accordingly. You know, we saw the bond prices, especially at the 30-year or the bond yields at the 30-year space and across the spectrum, um, jumping up quite significantly. And then the dollar, the pound weakened to 103 briefly against the dollar. If you think kind of from the start of 22, it was floating at, at 135 or so. And even yeah. this morning, it hasn't hasn't recovered completely. It's, I think it's about 118. Um, and that sort of volatility, especially when you've got companies that rely on the underlying financials. So the insurers, again, a good example of this, um, where the government had, UK government had to step in and, and support the bond prices at the 30 year level in order to keep these insurers able to, to match their liabilities with their assets. Yeah, not, not the best period or not the best 38 days for, for the UK government. 
Yeah, you know, but again, once you've got a stable leadership coming in, then you hear nothing until things go wrong. So the fact that it's been very quiet, um, and I think we have, uh, and this is my own opinion, someone of, of pedigree when it comes to international finance and business, someone who's respected, um, someone whose youth is is an advantage in this case, um, as we have now, then I, I really hope that uh, the UK will, will regain its place at the table as a senior player in the in the world financial and fiscal markets because they deserve the place and we also need them over there um, just to give the market stability and growth going forward. But Scott, let's jump to one of the um, examples that you've used as a company that you've invested in and that you're very, very comfortable with having, and that's Procter & Gamble. Let's just take the listeners through quickly who Procter & Gamble are for those who don't know what segment of the market they work in, and why you guys are so happy to have them in your portfolios. Sure. So Procter & Gamble um, sell a, quite a diversified range of products, but they really focus on household and personal care. So they're a US-listed business, and they've been around since 1837. So that's, what, 185 years' worth of, of company continuing to maintain and grow profits over time. And I think what we we really like a number of, of components of the business. First off, their market leadership. They're, they're number one in the FMs or fast-moving consumer goods industry. They have incredible pricing power. I mean, we saw this even through 2020 and 2021, where, where really the supply chains were pushing their prices up and they were able to pass those price increases onto the consumer throughout the course of 2021. And I think that stands the company in really good stead if you are if you have the brand loyalty and market leadership that allows you to do that. Um, they've also got a fantastic track record. Um, so I've mentioned, you know, dating back to 1837, but but even in terms of dividend growth, they've grown their dividends um, each year in it, for each of the last 50 years. In fact, I think it's about 54 years now um, is the number. They're also incredibly good um, from a diversification perspective and their ability to innovate as well. Um, so it's so they during 2021, not only did they increase prices, but they were able to innovate with a number of their products. And so that allows them to maintain a strong pricing power because the end consumer isn't just having to pay more for the product, but they're actually getting a better product. Um, and I think those components, as you marry them together, along with you know, ability to maintain margins over time, just make it a company that is robust, reliable, great track record of growing dividends, and has been able to do it you know, despite whether it's Black Monday going back to the 1980s or the Asian financial crisis, the dot-com bubble, 2000, 2001, global financial crisis, and even through COVID. So I think really it's a, it's a company for the ages, a company that allows us to to invest um, and, and make sure we invest at a reasonable price, but then effectively to to just buy and hold, um, obviously monitoring it on a on an ongoing basis. But you mentioned at the very start of of the segment that you know investors being worried about the volatility and everything else. Effectively, companies like Procter and Gamble allow us and allow our investors to to really sleep at the end of the day, um, which I think is 
aside from the financial side of things, I think the ability to reliably trust the companies that you're invested in is a huge emotional component of investing as well. The obvious question is, you know, that's all good and well, but, you know, how does the average investor access the Procter & Gamble share or the company via your funds? What's the simplest way to do it? Um, So we've really got two options. Um, So we have two equity unit trust funds called the Marriott First World Equity Fund and the Marriott International Growth Fund. So those are funds that are listed in Ireland and can be accessed um, either through a financial advisor or direct with Marriott. And we also have what we call our international investment portfolio. And these are share portfolios. So each, each client gets an individual share portfolio. And those, that share portfolio will comprise of 20 to 25 companies, Procter & Gamble and companies like Procter & Gamble. And again, that can be accessed um, through a financial advisor or, or directly with Marriott. Um, and then finally, from a... From a RAND investment perspective, we also have our feeder funds, which invest directly into our international unit trusts. And those are the first world equity feeder fund and the Marriott International Growth Feeder Fund. Um, Scott, so the, basically some people can be in touch with you guys via Marriott and they can then go on either online or speak to one of your advisors or to their financial advisor and get access to, to, to you know, the Procter & Gamble company via different funds that you have. So a lot of people are asking now, can you give us other examples of companies that you have invested in offshore besides Procter & Gamble that you feel will deliver good dividends going forward? Sure. I mean, if if I even just think about just the companies that have the number one market position, I mean, we've got Diageo in the portfolios, number one in the spirit side. L'Oreal, which is a fantastic cosmetics business, Microsoft, which I'm sure everybody will know. And then you've got companies like Nestle, Johnson Johnson, Medtronic, um, and McDonald's. And then over the past, over the course of this year, um, I'm going back to the market volatility, we've, we've, there was a couple of companies that have been on our watch list for, for quite a long time. We've always wanted to, to own them, but at the same time, the price has effectively always been too high. And so we were also able to add both Starbucks and Nike to our portfolios this year. Um, two companies that, that are brilliant companies, um, robust, brilliant brand power, um, pricing power, robust balance sheets. Um, and it's just we'd never be able to invest in them because they were just too expensive at that time. But with the market sell-off, um, particularly around um, supposed growth companies, um, we were able to to take the opportunity to add both of those stocks to our portfolios as well. You know, interesting you say Nike. That was one of the books, Shoe Dog, that I read uh, many many years ago, and it's a there's certain part of parts of those of that book that stand in my in mind. That you know, there was a company that literally limped along. You know, excuse the pun, I suppose, for many 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 years until their listing came. Um, and they were touch and go on an ongoing basis. Uh, there was just so much challenge that they had. Um, the simplest one being that anyone in the East could just copy their shoe and flood the market with it um, and how to deal with those things and um, how you had original shareholders who just weren't able to change and move and, and be pliable and dynamic. Just, uh, if anybody wants to read a really good business book, Shoe Dog, um, is a book to, to go and read. Scott, before I let you go, because we've got about seven minutes to go, 
Um, some local companies people are asking for that you feel that um, that are in your portfolios that locally that you feel you're quite f- fond of. I know you you're an offshore ex- um, um, expert, but that's just one question that's come through. If you if you can answer it for us, sure, no problem. Um, so our main equity fund locally is our dividend growth fund. And because of the restrictions, we are able to include um, a number of our offshore companies within that portfolio. Um, but if I think, you know, in terms of the local companies that are there, we own two banks within the portfolio. So Standard Bank and First Strand, um, right. both well capitalized, um, attractive dividend yields, um, good dividend track records. Um, Sanlam on the insurance side. And then when it kind of comes to food retailers, you know, it's Spar. Pick and pay and shoprite checkers. We also have net care, net care and life health care in there from a from a hospital group perspective. Monday um, provides some some good diversification in terms of the paper production. Um, we own clicks as well, AVI. Um, and then we also have some property companies within that portfolio as well. Um, Equitus, Nepi Rock Castle, um, Growth Point. Um, so really a nice balanced um, international equi- well, equity portfolio that has some really high quality local property companies, has a number of high quality dividend growth local equities, and then it has kind of the best of the best from our international portfolios in there as well. And a lot of you know, Scott, I don't I have the information in front of me, but with the reliance on property companies being obviously a, a, a chunk of the share, has the share taken a, a, a you know a bit of a sideways knock the last couple of years? Um, it's obviously been tough. Um, I do. Th- we have, however, you know, we've only got ten percent um, property exposure in the fund, and that's been relatively recent. I think back to where South African property was a few years ago. I think it would have been a less attractive investment proposition. But I think now the property companies are are trading at very attractive, really attractive pricing. Um, significantly below their net asset values. Um, and we then obviously have the ability to just choose choose the very best. And we're very happy and comfortable with the four property, four property companies that we do have within dividend growth portfolio at the moment. Fantastic. Scott, just before I let you go, you know, I, you mentioned Sunlam in insurance. Sunlam is one of those phenomenal South African companies that was one of the original together with old mutual insurance companies in the in the country and had the foresight via the doing the, the direction of their CEO at the time to grow up and see the changes and not to stay in their ways and to really become part of the changing and morphing insurance field. Is that the reason why you've gone with them? Is that they besides being solid and having huge amounts of assets under management, is they've also got something dynamic about them. Yeah, uh, very much so. I think Sunlam are, are perhaps the most interesting and I think, in my opinion, the highest quality insurer in South Africa. They have a great book of, of South African business and that forms a core portion of the business and it provides them with, with reliable free cash flow um, year on year, profit year on year. But I think as well, it's important to to understand how Sunlam are a little bit different to some of the other insurers. I think first off, their stake in Santam. I think Santam are, are again, a, a brilliant business, a business that apart from 
the COVID or the business interruption claims um, and the, effectively the COVID issues have grown their dividends year on year without fail. Um, and I think as well, Sunland's management of their exposure or their growth into Africa and into India and the UK as well is done very smartly. So they take, in general, they, they look to go the joint venture route, they take minority shares, they, they work with the companies, sharing the profits, provide their expertise. And that's, I guess, that's also why we, why we see Sunland teaming up with Allianz. Um, which is a stock we actually hold in our in our international fund. It's actually the two insurers, one locally and one offshore, um, and the joint venture that they're working on together. So I think their ability to to leverage their operational skills to help grow the business over time and to do so in a way that manages the risk very well, I think makes it incredibly attractive. And you you add that to a six percent dividend yield, and wow. we expect sixty eight percent dividend growth coming going forward as well, it becomes a very attractive investment proposition. Scott, just before I let you go, you know, the the uh, cheeky kid on the block, the upstart discovery, is that something that you would look at putting into your portfolios going forward? Um, not at this time. Um, we, we conducted a review of it a couple of months ago, actually. We looked across the whole insurance sector, and it's not a company that's that we feel is well suited to our portfolio at the minute, um, but it's something we'll we'll continue to monitor over time. And if if things obviously adjust in two years or three years or however long it takes, then we would certainly consider adding it to portfolios. But at this time, it doesn't fit our metrics and our underlying beliefs for the fund. Great. And then before I let you go, I've got a few messages here that people are battling to find direct access to investments. Um, can you maybe just give me one email address that I can give out that people can email and that someone at Marriott can get back to them at? Sure. So we've got a brilliant communications team. Um, best way to get hold of them is to email info at Marriott. So that's M-A-R-R-I-O-T-T dot C-O dot Z-A. There you go. Info at Marriott dot C-O dot Z-A. Scott Cooper, thank you so much for your time and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great. Thanks, everybody, for listening, Craig. Thanks for pushing the buttons. We will speak to you next week.